0: But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. Uh, Are you surprised
1: the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis.
2: McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up.
0: This and I'm watching cnn talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know. It's uh Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You're listening to Yena yeah, Passeran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And our guest this week is Van Batham, the author of Q and On and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults. Thanks for joining us, Van.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. Love talking a bit of anti-fascism, one of my favourite things.
0: Uh, I guess, not to start off too Frost Nixon, but uh, Van, there have been a few uh, books about QAnon released recently. What makes yours different?
2: Well, mine's the Australian one, so there's that. And in the broader QAnon discourse, of which I'm I'm very fortunate to be a part, I think, uh, I think the contribution that I can make with this book is giving a perspective about how what is very much an American cult has become an international problem. And the other thing that I did with my book, I I mean, I have relied very heavily on the work of QAnon researchers like Marc-Andre Argentino, who's fantastic, and Mike Rothschild and Travis View and Will Summer and all those guys are sort of the heavy hitters in the QAnon watching space. They really pay very close attention to the operations of the cult and the sort of day-to-day activities of the cult. But as I started writing about QAnon, my interest because of, you know, the interests that I hold as a uh, activist in Australian public life became about a broader geopolitical question around campaigning and how QAnon is just the latest in a num- number of phenomena associated with the practice of bad faith, mainstream political actors sort of weaponizing a part of the electorate that hasn't been activated in a very long time. So that my contribution in with the book is the book isn't just about QAnon it looks at Gamergate and Pizzagate and QAnon and various other sort of offshoot theories like a bit of the anti-vax stuff to look at how the the organized hard right have have weaponized this community and used the internet to create a very effective propaganda and disinformation pipeline.
0: Good answer, but the yeah. answer I was, I was actually looking for is this book has me in it.
2: Oh, well, that's the best thing about the book uh, is obviously I interviewed the best of the best. Like I, I should point out, Cam Smith, the, the world we're living in is so weird that you were one of the experts who I spoke to. I spoke to clinical psychologists. I spoke to guys who track weird sort of evangelical Christian conspiracy theories online. But I also interviewed Miles Taylor, who's a former national security advisor in the Bush and Trump administrations. And I'm like, if you and Miles Taylor are both covered here, we, we really have a broad based social problem we need to address. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh,
0: something's gone a bit weird.
2: Something's gone a bit weird. It's like, here are my anarchist anti-fascist pals and also someone from the Bush administration is not is not really where I ever saw myself going, but we are where we are.
0: How do you situate Gamergate in terms of this whole QAnon phenomenon?
2: Well, I think a lot of particularly feminine like I was one of the feminists who got targeted in Gamergate in a very like small and sort of local way. It was sort of, you know, like the... Uh, the poor quality Australian diffusion brand of harassment that I was subjected to during the sort of peak of Gamergate. And, of course, Gamergate was when 4chan essentially decided that they would pursue a vendetta against feminists who had critiques of video games. It happened, it sort of started around, well, I mean, it really started around 2012 when they started harassing a feminist games academic called Anita Sarkeesian and then peaked around 2014 and continued until around 2016 and, and morphed into quite the online political movement. And it was, it was 4chan going essentially, you know, like we don't want girl germs in our gamer spaces and let's let's just 4chan the hell out of these women who are kicking off about games. And I mean it was just the most extraordinary this extraordinary sort of activist upsurge of coordinated misogyny. And you had the sort of attacks on Zoe Quinn, who ended up living in an elevator shaft because half the internet was coming after them and threatening to kill them and the the most incredible harassment, people like Brianna Wu who was driven from her home, like this kind of horrendous stuff. My localised experience of it was in 2016. They hacked my Twitter account and sent racially abusive messages to my friends and published sexually explicit material on the internet and I was like calling people at The Guardian who were calling people at Twitter to try and get this thing sort of shut down and this sort of constant sort of harassment and abuse and anxiety that went with that particular campaign. Well, it turned out that Steve Bannon was watching and Steve Bannon was already quite aware of the power of the internet in particular, of this sort of class of, you know, gamer boys on on the internet. He had been involved in trying to sell uh, he 'd been when in one of his many incarnations when he 'd been a merchant banker, he was involved in some kind of business deal where they were trying to like float the currency of World of Warcraft so you could if you were playing World of Warcraft, you could earn certain credits and buy certain things and like a currency exchange had popped up within the game, and bannon 's people were like, "We can monetize this ourselves and take it over and there was a sort of mass revolt of gamers. Against this sort of corporate takeover of World of Warcraft credit trading, and and Bannon at the time described it as realizing the monster power of the internet. And of course, when Gamergate happened, like the willingness of this sort of four chan community and communities around it to do literally anything. I mean, Zoe Quinn's father was in ICU. I think was having heart problems. The the disease or illness is not the point. The point is he was in ICU, and Gamergate has sent this extremely ill man a packet of photographs of Zoe Quinn that they'd downloaded from the internet and masturbated upon, and these sort of despoiled images were sent to Zoe Quinn's father when he was in ICU. And it's like, that's extraordinary. Like, as a, as a political act, that is one of the most despicable things I've ever heard of. And, of course, Bannon was watching all of this, going, well, this is incredible, like, people who are willing to do things like this, that people who are willing to do anything, like join my project for a white ethno state." So locating the sort of Gamergate as this place where people like Bannon realised what the internet could do, the kind of communities it could foster and what it was capable of, for me that's the context, that's how you get Pizzagate, it's how you get identities like Alex Jones and it's how you get QAnon.
1: Gamergate, as a misogynist uh, exercise, developed an audience which uh, Bannon then uh, redeployed but do you find that that misogyny uh, that thread remains within QAnon. When you oh get yeah, it now.
2: absolutely. I mean, I called the the chapter about Gamergate in the book Gateway Drugs because we, I mean, we know this from studying patterns of terrorism in the West that there's a there is a misogyny is the gateway drug to acts of, of violence and greater terror. It's like if you like misogyny, you will absolutely love racism. You know, like. That's You really see that channel. Once you're in a, a forum that says it's okay to call women bitches or sluts or whores and talk about raping them, once you can dehumanise 51% of the population... It's not too hard to demonise the rest. And I can say quite definitively that that pipeline exists because I've been getting lots of love letters this week from our friends in in Melbourne and, in fact, all over the world, as I call them the anti-something protesters or, and I I can do that in, in this forum quite explicitly, They're neo-fascists who are having their little street parties, swastikas, nooses and all in in the streets of Melbourne. They're aware of the fact that I've written this book. Obviously, I've been sharing a lot of material, uh, critiquing, I believe is the polite word, uh, their political behaviour and objectives. And I've just been absolutely deluged this week. I think I blocked about 500 people two days ago. And, I mean, the misogyny just drips. Jackie Lambie, who is an interesting political character, uh, a person not necessarily not necessarily the most ideologically consistent individual our Jackie. Uh she gave a really great speech in parliament about a week ago where she was saying, you know, put your big pants on and get vaccinated, take a bit of adult responsibility. And that the clip of her giving the speech in Parliament where she laid into Pauline Hanson went quite viral and I shared it because I, I want to reach the people who have voted for Jackie Lambie and who think she's, you know, a good, I want to reach them with a pro-vax, anti-fascist message. I think that's quite a good community to get on board with the anti-fascist project. And the misogyny directed at Jackie Lambie was, I mean, it was old school. I haven't seen anything that bad in a few years because I'm now just like the blocking queen. I've been harassed so much. I said to somebody the other day who was like, are you all right? I see you are getting a lot of harassment. I was like, I've been at this rodeo so many, so long that they've given me a free horse. Like it's, you know, in, in, in our household, we call me getting a death threat, a day ending in Y. And the, the, but the misogyny directed towards Jackie and myself this week, it was, it was really like being back there in the, in the trenches of the sort of Gamergate era and just the constant dripping hatred of women. And, of course, there are women who join in on that as well. You know, the, the kind of person who the feminist community in Australia often refers to as the boy suck uh, or academic communities refer to as those who make patriarchal bargaining, like women who think that if they ingratiate themselves with misogynists, it will spare them from misogyny. Uh, spoiler alert, this has never happened. They they joined in on it too. But just so everybody's aware, you know, I'm a whore, I'm a slag, I'm a slut, I'm ugly, I'm fat, uh, nothing really changes. A
1: lot of this uh, abuse is um, taking place on Twitter. Can you explain how what the relationship is between uh, racist, misogynist trolls on 4chan and how that sentiment is then harnessed and conveyed through uh, Reddit, Twitter, Facebook and elsewhere. What what are the steps that are involved?
2: Well, academics call it the web centipede where messages are effectively tested in certain forums so 4chan for those anyone listening to the show who's not familiar 4chan is an image board it began so it, it's a format that sort of started in Japan where reader like website participants were able to make posts in real time and post pictures which when this all started in late 1990s early 2000s when this sort of internet form started was quite amazing oh my god posting pictures incredible And the 4chan was built by a 15 year old boy called Christopher Poole, who was known online as Moot, who just copied the code from one of these Japanese websites because he was an anime fan and really just wanted to talk about anime. The way the site was structured meant everybody who posted was anonymous. So it became quite an interesting experiment for sociologists to look at how people behave when their anonymity is completely guaranteed in this sort of constantly refreshing real time conversation where nobody knows who the various speakers are. And because it had originally been created, by a 15-year-old boy, not that anyone knew this at the time, who was into sort of anime, it attracted the sort of young Western boys who had access to the internet and wanted to talk about like porn and like sexually explicit tentacle material and the rest of it. So it it sort of kicked off this very anything goes and because they were essentially adolescents or adults who were indulging a sort of adolescent mindset, it really became a place where it was one of the, the unspoken laws of 4chan is like whatever you saw that was shocking, there'll be something more shocking in the next post and had this internal culture of sort of pushing the envelope as far as it could possibly be. I mean, this has always existed on the internet. I'm so old. I remember things like rotten.com and, you know, <laughs> how, how this like two girls, one cup and Goatsy and things like this. Like this has always been part of challenging the sort of free speech principles of the internet is, well, how, how far can we push that? But, of course, what happened on 4chan, I, one of the articles I talk about in the book is an American writer for the Daily Beast who was like, the thing is that if you create a space where misogyny or racism can be ironic is people who hold those values completely unironically will hitch their fascism to what you're doing and of course it became a place where Essentially, racism could be message tested, and you had people like Andrew Anglin from the Daily Stormer who just replicated 4chan and the the cultural style of 4chan when he built the Daily Stormer. Like he's quite honest about that. That you know there was zing to it, and there was this sort of cultural heft that came with the way people communicated on 4chan, and of course, various other actors have looked at. What gets purchased on 4chan, like the QAnon story, like Hillary Clinton's going to be indicted and, you know, there's a deep state and military people and Donald Trump are trying to save us all from the pedophiles and the rest of it. Very early on, people saw the capacity to build communities through Reddit channels that weren't like 4chan, that weren't saturated with sort of adolescent, young heterosexual men from the West, but to create to sort of stoke and create formats with a a tested message that could appeal to different demographics. And of course, once you get to Facebook where everybody's mum is, and particularly on Facebook, where you have a large community of people who are older, who don't have particularly sophisticated information literacy, the older you are, the more likely you are to trust what you read on Facebook, which is a shame. You end up with bad faith actors sort of stoking particular communities and particular demographics around cultural images and communities that radicalise them in a far right direction. And I certainly go into detail in the book about how that was achieved and who got involved when and how the QAnon myth and, and and Pizzagate and Gamergate metastasized. In terms of Twitter, one of the things they really pioneered with Gamergate was the concept of Twitter swarming where it, if you could be bothered creating a number of sock puppet accounts, if you could be bothered creating 20, 40, 60, 100 accounts, you could push or you could automate messages and attack messages out really quickly with hashtags and cause hashtags to trend, all of which targeted like a, a victim or a movement or, a you know, particular set of accounts. And uh, you only needed like a small group of people who knew what they were doing to do this. And then the swarm was like this proximity effect where If a hashtag started trending that was like, for example, kill all feminists or whatever, you could rely on communities who were simpatico to those beliefs to jump on board and to create organic growth. And it's these kind of lessons learned organically that have been totally professionalised and organised by digital actors to run campaigns like the Trump campaign and the Clive Palmer campaign in 2019 in Australia and certainly in Brexit, like these kind of phenomena have been studied and used and, and deployed really to the detriment of democracy everywhere.
0: In the states, I think we've we've discussed on the show before about how, you know, the last 20 years of Fox News sort of primed the, an older generation to be quite ready to be pilled on things like QAnon. When you look at Australia, what sort of demographics were the first to latch onto QAnon and what do you think primed them?
2: Well, in Australia, and I talk about this in the book as well, like it got in through the wellness community. So in America, QAnon, QAnon was just ripe for a disappointed alt right who'd campaign to get Trump elected, Trump had got elected and, you know, the the white ethno state didn't materialise and, you know, pesky democracy and and various processes, the the vast inefficiency of the failed American state frustrated the Trump agenda. Yay, I think. And of course, in America, you have these political communities that are already radicalised around things like Fox News and... But in Australia and in Germany, the way that the sort of Q1 mythos entered was through the wellness community. In fact, I spoke to this amazing guy when I was uh, writing the book called Cam Smith, who's like an extremism and anti-fascist researcher from Melbourne, who talked about how he was seeing sort of Yummy mummy wellness groups start going. Yeah, I'm really concerned about Hillary Clinton, and are uh, organising get-togethers in in pubs in Oakley to to talk about their particular political and anti- sudden political antipathies in antipathies to the American deep state, and and that was. Uh, facilitated by Facebook and sort of algorithmic radicalization, which is a term that Joshua Roos, who's a he writes for the conversation, he's a counterterrorism expert. And I did a show with him the other day and he's really good. And he that's his phrase is algorithmic radicalization, which he originally looked at in like jihadist communities. And Facebook essentially did the same thing in Australia. Like a friend of mine was looking for organic dog food, uh, to feed her, her dog and ended up getting recommended all of these anti vax pages, this sort of soft anti vax message that pretty quickly became recommendations to watch propaganda videos from the United States about, uh, about the, you know, the secret conspiracy of pedophiles working with Hillary Clinton to torture children for their screams to, you know, develop um, superpowers from you know, the the extracted blood of tortured children, kind of thing, and and that's really how it got in in Australia in Germany. It's it's a very it's a big and ugly problem, obviously, because there are that that community that or that tradition of extremism in Germany has never entirely gone away, and you've seen some pretty serious protest action in Germany of this weird sort of meld of of wellness and radical far-right belief. Bridget Delaney, who's my colleague at The Guardian, who writes about, uh, like, wellness and has a really great book called Mania about her sort of experiences in the wellness community, she started picking up on the, the sort of wellness crossover with QAnon a couple of years ago and she found she identified a phenomenon that another writer had called fusion paranoia where it's like hey like i really like organic food and eating paleo and i'm a bit dodgy on vaccines because i don't trust big pharma that community meets a bunch of bunch of fascists going yeah well big pharma is one of the institutions that we want to strap to our project to build a white ethno state, and we can do that by convincing people not to take drugs that will save their lives because then we can convince them to do anything it's like oh my god me too you know that kind of fusion of paranoia beliefs creates this alliance where they start feeding different forms of propaganda to one another. And certainly in the groups, and I'm sure you guys have seen this as well, that I'm sort of hiding into research, that I'm hitting into research the book and sort of my continuing interest in this space, like this bizarre sort of, you know, Nazis for organic bread kind of movement that's really taken off. And, you know, like I, I, I love Fresh Oranges, Vitamin C and Genocide, Kind of themes that that keep cropping up is is I mean it's genuinely it's genuinely terrifying. It was interesting. So in the book, another one of the researchers I spoke to were the guys from the QAnon Origins Project in the United States who do a lot of writing for Bellingcat. And monitor these guys all the time. I think you've had them on the show before and they're really, really good. And uh, one of them did the expert read of the manuscript uh, when it was still in draft form and he was like, wow, lizard people are such a big thing in Australia. He's like, lizard people aren't, aren't a big thing in in American QAnon. Like they've got their own sort of culturally specific paranoias. And I was like, oh, no, no, like QAnon in Australia we get a lot of lizard people. So they're these sort of interesting cultural flavours that come with the different groupings and the different sort of places where the conspiracy theory has latched on. I guess
0: the other great thing about Australian QAnon that I think surpassed you know, the original flavour is that what, what was the best that the Americans got out of Trump was, uh, oh, yeah, those guys uh, don't like pedophiles, me neither, whereas we had a, a QAnon guy who'd be best mates with the Prime Minister.
2: Yeah, and um, whose uh, son is still very active on Gab and threatens to hang... Uh, Malcolm Turnbull in in public, which I, I find very interesting. Yeah, so the, the Americans, like when I spoke to to Miles Taylor, he was just like, "I've got to say, as a national security person, that's a concern." I was like, "Yeah, it is. It's kind of a concern that the prime minister's best friend is a QAnon, and his son is a QAnon, and they've all and his the prime minister's best friend's wife has, of course, posted QAnon slogans and material in her various uh, social media." expressions. And they have stayed at Kirribilli House. His the The wife was given a security clearance. And it's like, that may not seem like a big security risk now if they're friends with the Prime Minister, but he's not going to be Prime Minister forever. Hopefully he won't be Prime Minister by the end of next year. And the idea that another government could come in, even another Liberal leader. I mean, the the whole, that sort of QAnon circle around Scott Morrison was very public about attacking Scott Morrison's rivals and enemies within the Liberal Party, which is something I found very interesting, was that, you know, there had been public denunciations of Alexander Downer, public denunciations of Malcolm Turnbull and of Julie Bishop. One of the, the quotes I included in the book was Lucy Turnbull on Twitter talked about how she and Malcolm were like in the street and somebody drove up to them and screamed, hey, pedophiles, and then sort of drove off, like really shows the penetration of the the QAnon mythology and how it's been seeded. The idea that a Prime Minister of Australia would welcome that in to Kirribilli House is, I mean, completely extraordinary. There are lots of reasons that Scott Morrison should lose the next election and that that lack of judgment or simpatico-ness uh, with those Beliefs, if that's—I mean, that's the thing. It's either extremely bad judgment, the world's ugliest form of cynicism, or or some kind of like shared sort of values. And in all three of those cases, that's that's pretty disqualifying from a leadership role.
0: One of the situations you look at in relation to that is the whole thing around Scott Morrison calling out uh, ritual abuse in his apology to uh, victims of institutional child abuse. I was curious, where did you land on how that came to be? Did you, do you think that that was partly uh, Tim Stewart getting in his ear or do you think that perhaps his own evangelical beliefs might have played a role in that?
2: Look, it, I mean, it could be his evangelical beliefs. And certainly the thing about QAnon and the whole, that whole sort of conspiracy genre is that the it, it's grounded in the apocalyptic language of evangelical Christianity, like absolutely. And it... Uses like the these these concepts of like the Great Awakening, the very specific sort of Protestant concepts as well, you know, and and these various bits of of. of Christian iconography that have been absorbed into this mythos. But the specific use of the term ritual sexual abuse is really interesting because, one, it harks back to the satanic panic of um, the 1980s in America, you know, this idea that evil Satan-worshipping pedophiles were everywhere and they were getting their hands on on your children. And this was like a big media storm back in the 1980s that resulted in like 12,000 complaints to the police, none of which had a single shred of evidence to To argue any of them and we're all dismissed kind of thing but the ritual sexual abuse is you know obviously this idea that it's all satan worshipers who are stealing children and, and torturing them for their screams and doing abominable things to them and of course that the term is discredited in the actual the child protection space because it's the kind of thing used by cranks and you know this idea that that child abusers are dressing up like the great Satan to harm children and whatever is very, like it is discredited after things like the satanic panic. Like we know, like we know that people who abuse children are generally people who are close to them, not secret cults snatching kids. They're like, it's opportunistic abuse that comes from people betraying intimate trust through like a grooming process. Like we know all of this now. And when that term popped up in Morrison's speech, it was when Morrison was supposedly giving the apology to the victims of, of sexual violence and abuse in the after the Royal Commission into institutional cover-ups of uh, abuse. And you had people who had been through the most extraordinary, just, just absolutely horrendous family situations, you know, people who had buried kids who had committed suicide after abuse, like, you know, very sensitive moment for the nation. And then in the apology that's supposed to account for, you know, the government's role in allowing these kind of abuses to, to perpetuate by not applying the scrutiny deserved to these various institutions, you have this sort of dog whistle to really, like, nutty, paranoid stuff that gets said by the Prime Minister. And, of course, it got picked up by the kind of people who uh, research and investigate in this space who was like, hang on, and there's a paper trail or a digital paper trail from Tim Stewart who had been hanging out with a internet crank called High Priest. And High Priest and Tim Stewart had been talking about different ways they could influence the Prime Minister to get him to talk about all kinds of things. And Tim Stewart had this relationship with a well-known sort of conspiracy theorist in the United States called Isaac Cappy, who was one of these guys claiming that everybody in Hollywood was a pedophile and that was probably the reason his uh career as an actor didn't go anywhere, that was his argument. He had been out to Australia and hung out with the Stuarts, and they'd been hanging out with Fiona Barnett, who's just like Australia's queen conspiracy theorist around this stuff. Fiona Bunnett does these amazing videos, uh, and in the footnotes of the book I, I link to some of them, they are really very special, where she tells these incredible lurid tales about how she was sexually abused by various people, including three Labor prime ministers and Richard Nixon at the behest of the CIA because of her grandparents who were Nazi spies brought out to Australia secretly by the CIA to run an MK Ultra program and turned her into a child assassin and it's this level of influence that the prime minister was was subject to dropping terms like ritual sexual abuse into speeches in parliament at the behest of Tim Stewart and this sort of extraordinary rogues gallery of just bonkers conspiracy theorists who had who Tim Stewart had fallen in with and these were the people influencing The language of a prime ministerial speech like and it's when you see that speech in the context of fiona barnett's videos that you just think this is more than a security risk this is a reality risk like a prime minister who's willing to engage with these people is off piste and it's it's really a cause for concern when i found the fiona barnett videos it was i mean a lot of the research i did for the book was really disturbing as you can imagine like some very desperate and vulnerable people, but also some really evil people. Like writing a book about Steve Bannon is not is not easy. <laughs> like it's not it's not a, a happy, joy, fun time. But the Fiona Barnett stuff is so unhinged, and the willingness of people to sort of engage with that level of of fantasy and paranoia and and form groups around it and activate activate around that that was really confronting for me. Like that was really terrifying. That was like there are people who will believe anything if if their buttons are pressed in a certain way.
1: In terms of the response of Morrison to the commission, but also much more recently, we've seen thousands of people take to the streets to decry uh, Dictator Dan, to protest against vaccinations. And they've done so in quite large numbers. And I wonder what you think about the government's response because it seems to be a fairly, well, it seems to me to be the case that many of those who are taken to the streets would possibly be expected to vote not for Labor but for the Coalition. Therefore, it makes sense for the Prime Minister and others not to be too harsh in their criticism of these mobilisations. What's your reading on the situation and how do you think QAnon has influenced it?
2: Well, I mean, we know those people. You know those people. I know them from the groups that I lurk in. We can identify them. Like my friend Bunnings Karen and Cam, I know that there's some dispute around the original Bunnings Karen. <laughs> well, there's no, there's no
0: dispute. There's just a few people need to get their timelines correct.
2: Um, the woman who I know as as Bunnings Karen, certainly from the moment she popped out uh, outside the CFMEU, you, you can imagine I've had quite a bit to do with the CFMEU in my time and she is not a member. So, I mean, it was it was really confronting for me to sit there and because and, I'm watching all of those protests play out uh, in the groups that I'm in, that I've infiltrated and see that this is an organised far right doing what an organised far right do, which is seize an opportunity to mobilise and exaggerate their numbers at a time where there's not going to be opposition on the streets because everybody else quite sensibly was at home sheltering from the invisible killer virus ripping through the community. And the, the attitude of the Liberal Party and the National Party towards these people has, it actually did stagger me. Like, when you read about the formation of the Liberals back in forty eight and the sort of vision that Menzies had for the party, Menzies was very much of the belief the the reason why the Liberals are called the Liberals and not the Conservatives was because they had liberal they did have liberal values. They're not values that I share, but they had liberal values. And his opinion always was that they didn't have to play to placate the Conservatives because the Conservatives would vote for them anyway, that as an anti-Communist sort of anti-Labour party that that vote would be sewn up. And that was always the sort of compact with the Liberal Party that, you know, the Conservatives could rant and rave, but they would have to sort of come along with the the centre-right project anyway. Wow, what an optimistic post-World War II sort of attitude that has totally evaporated over time. The idea that one in five members of the Coalition Caucus in Victorian State Parliament went down to hang out with the demonstrators. Peter Credlin was there. The, you know Obviously Craig Kelly, who was elected as a federal Liberal, even though he's in supposedly independent now or UAP or whatever he is. George Christensen giving them their solidarity. Like it is absolutely extraordinary how far the Liberal Party has fallen from Liberal values. And I made this point online that when you have a party whose own members are white-anting and attacking Sort of liberal figures like Julia Banks and Alexander Downer and Julie Bishop and Malcolm Turnbull. Like those. Those are the people who you want to represent the brand because they're the ones who swing voters would more identify with, whereas the Liberal brand is becoming associated with these lunatics on the streets of Melbourne who are marching nooses past Parliament House. And we all know that the, the nooses are the least of it. There have been people turning up with weapons to these events. There have been people now arrested for inciting the bringing of guns and the, and the making of bombs, death threats against the prime, the Premier of Victoria constantly like they are a hard, organised radical right. And there's there seems to be this sort of cynical opportunism of the the Liberals and the Nationals thinking that they can somehow, that these people can sort of serve their interests and they can be sort of weaponised as a radical sort of front for their political movement and ideology that this is how you lay one on Daniel Andrews, which is the most extraordinarily stupid political thing I've heard in Australia in some time given the fact that Andrews Every day those protesters are out. Andrews's poll numbers go up. Like he's now there. Are, there was a poll that came out the other day that had him at fifty eight forty two, and there were pollsters online disagreeing, saying that was conservative, and they had him more at sixty sixty one to thirty nine, which is like John Curtin didn't get sixty one at the height of the Second World War when he just built the welfare state. Like Curtin was on fifty eight forty two. So it is. It's just an extraordinary, scare, extraordinarily scary political calculation because. You know, this is absolutely recognisably a far-right uprising. You know, you don't take swastikas to a, a centrist gathering that doesn't tend to get the crowds in. The cultural memory has not dimmed so much about what that actually represents. And, of course, the language is so hostile, the the threats are violent. Like, the, the character of those protests is really anti-democratic. Like, call me old school, but I don't think threatening to hang the premier is really the, the kind of movement that celebrates democracy, and yet, this this willingness of the liberals to engage it, my theory is that they've consumed so much of their own online propaganda that they that they uh, are thinking that this is the dominant character of the Australian right, and I just think that this is a, a massive miscalculation. I, I mean, one of the the points that my partner, my partner Ben and I do a weekly podcast called The Week on Wednesday, where we sort of tease out, like, tease out the political issues of the week. And Ben was like, his analysis is that the, the liberals are following the Republican playbook in the United States so closely that they think that these, the sort of tactics of a, of an emboldened hard right who are tub thumping and making threats and waving nooses. I mean, you have this going all on all over America at the moment, and it is genuinely terrifying. The thing is in America that the sort of street theater of intimidation has a has an electoral meaning because if you get a bunch of heavily armed white people out on the streets waving nooses and threatening to kill or kidnap say the governor of Michigan it's a it's a very effective deterrent from people from minority communities and marginalized groups from getting to the polls because you know do you do you, are you so committed to, to voting for somebody who you know might might or possibly disappoint you in office, that you're willing to run a gamut of like hard right, heavily armed, gun wielding neo fascists in order to get to the ballot box. But in Australia, we have compulsory voting, so the, the politics of intimidation don't really work here. And the idea that that political calculations are being made to brand associate with those kind of that kind of movement. I don't think is a, is a particularly intelligent or sophisticated one, and I think they're already paying a price for that. Whether there's an argument that this is them trying to sort of lock down their base, well, I think they're they're looking at the wrong base. I think the liberals are infinitely more dangerous when they play to that sort of middle Australia socially liberal, so, socially liberal, economically conservative kind of community that genuinely and generally plays much better for them. And I just I can't get my head around this political logic unless they think they can run the kind of voter suppression campaigns that have been run in the United States. And certainly things like their voter ID laws tend to indicate that that's probably where their thinking is at.
1: Uh, so we won't be seeing uh, the anti-fascist uh, riot in Australia as they did in Washington on January the 6th.
2: Well, that's one of my favourite stories in the book is how quickly when the coup failed on January 6th, the right mobilised incredibly quickly to try and blame anti-fascists for January 6th, which I've got to say, like... You know, I've always been very proud uh, to be an anti-fascist and to join my anti-fascist comrades in the streets. I'm, I've never really engaged that level of organisation to get literally thousands of people willing to dress up like fascists, go to a pro-Trump demo, sing all the songs, wave all the flags, stay in hotels, and then take over a parliament building in disguise. Like that's, I'm I'm used to just rocking up, you know. Like that's a lot of effort to go to. But this extraordinary story that the New York Times. Broke the story of the origins of the sort of disinformation pipeline that tried to ping anti-fascists for January six. It's like the the book tells the whole story. And in fact, you know, so it was a a radio. Some guy online was like, "Oh, it's definitely Antifa." And then um, the guy who was uh, subbing in for Rush Limbaugh, he announced this sort of tweet as if it was the fact. And then they brought in that they had facial recognition te- technology that had pinged the January 6th protesters as Antifa and Extinction Rebellion. And, like, this was all pushed out through Epoch Times and the, and the um, Mooney Church. And it was this incredible disinformation pipeline that sort of pushed this nonsense like this easily disprovable nonsense and of course our friends George Christensen and Craig Kelly in Australia got up and said oh yeah no it was we've seen the footage and we know about this story and it's definitely you know Antifa and Kelly and Christensen making these comments was then uh, used by Fox News uh, to push this line they were like oh well you know Australian parliamentarians they know they've got this in- intelligence that says that this is what's going on. And then the Fox News line got repeated by Matt Gaetz, who's a Trumpian congressman from Florida, in like it, during the session where they were trying to accredit the votes. Like so this amazing just total ab- like abject lie went around the world incredibly quickly. And you had Australian political actors, Christensen and Kelly, who were part of that. Like it, it's a really, it's the rabbit hole of this stuff. I can't. I can't stress enough that it's not just a few kooks being kooky. Like there are very powerful political interests on the right who are weaponizing these communities to serve their own agendas and a lot of people are participating in that. It is disgustingly cynical. And in Australia where the 2019 election really was determined by digital campaigning, like there were Operatives from the Labor Party who described what Clive Palmer was doing online as like being in, being in a war and not realising you had a second front until all your cities had burned down. And the kind of disinformation campaigning that has been used in um, in Australian federal politics for the past couple of years is a real source of concern, especially when you look at just how entrenched those pipelines of disinformation have become in the United States. Like there are people who will tell you, like totally believing on the basis of media that they've consumed, that anti-fascists were responsible for January 6th and it was all a false flag operation and a trap and the rest of it. It is amazing. Well, I think that...
1: It points to one of the themes in the book, which is that one of the reasons QAnon and similar theories have such power is because they don't depend upon a factual account of the world. Instead, they present a certain narrative which is appealing to at least a segment of the population. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think that vision is and where does this uh, desperate Let's say um, desire for some such narrative, some consoling narrative. Where does it come from? In other words, what are the? Do you think of the underlying social factors that render people vulnerable to this kind of nonsense?
2: Well, certainly, my own experience of the book. Like, I I went into the book as a left wing person, going, well, surely, and uh, you know, and me as a veteran of a thousand arguments online, like a million arguments online. A thousand is pretty conservative. I think I have a thousand. Arguments with people online in a day. And I think left wing people really struggle to understand that right wing people just don't think the way we do. And writing the book, I had to sort of, I had to, I had to really take the beam out of my own eye. From, from two misconceptions I had. One, that if you just argue the truth with people, of course, they'll come around to it. Like, this is, this is the height of left wing vanity is to presume that facts and logic will win an argument. Like, God bless us, guys. Like, that's just adorable to think that you can argue the facts or the science and that, that will be enough to change someone's mind. Similarly, arguing the morality of a situation is completely ridiculous. When you're arguing the morality of a situation with people who fundamentally believe in the creation of a white ethno state, you are not going to win a, on an argument, on a, a moral argument with those people because they just they have no morals. The so that was a big thing for for me was the the research and especially when I spoke to clinical psychologists who were like people are attracted to conspiracy theories when they're overwhelmed with information and they experience a, a distress or a status upset in particular and the world becomes too complicated for them and conspiracy theories are great because conspiracy theories give you both a very polarized and simple understanding of the world around you, that it's either good, bad, light, dark, patriots or traitors, you know, human beings or lizard people. You know, that's—it's everything becomes a binary. And that's a huge comfort for people who are overwhelmed by all the nuance of different information. And obviously, you can see the appeal of conspiratorial thinking during coronavirus, where overnight, suddenly everybody had to learn, uh, you know, a language of biological sciences and, and virology, you know, and what were the correct policy responses in a situation where the science was changing? You know, these were, these are really difficult times that require enormous amounts of intellectual effort and judgment, constantly reevaluated judgment. And that is too much for some people if they've got other things going on in their lives. So that was one of the things that I had to be disabused of. The other thing that was really important, like I'm, I'm a very, you know, like boring Marxist, like, and everything is material, and I came at it from going, right, well, we know that this is about globalisation globalization and its discontents. This is about a an oppressed class, specifically in the United States, a displaced working class and people who have been shafted by the offshoring of manufacturing and the the neoliberal erosion of the American dream and working class purchase on standard of living. That's where I came at it from. And that's not who these people are at all. Like working class people don't have time to fly down or money to fly down to Washington and stay in a four-star hotel and, you know, go to a few restaurants before trying to overthrow the government on the weekend. Like that's not the working class experience in the United States at all. Not in a country where one in seven households live in food poverty. Like that's that's not who those people are. And the research that kept coming out, and I'd like to say I'm not the only person who who made that misjudgment. Like, you know, the the big left liberal publications in the United States were certainly running with this image of the Trump voter. And Trump is this sort of blue collar billionaire icon, which was something that he was described as by Sean Hannity and Fox. And, you know, this idea that I think a lot of people had, particularly outside the United States, the Trump voters were, you know, the, the rust belt working class. And he won Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin on the basis of this sort of working class vote. That's not that, that's not the Trump base. The Trump base is a disaffected middle class and they're not disaffected by globalization. They're disaffected because they've been culturally displaced by by social, like, um, liberal social movements that have looked at things like trying to take apart the structure of American racism and structural racism in America. They're a group that sees their cultural image of themselves threatened by feminism and marriage equality and, you know, movements for trans inclusion. Like these, there's a really great American academic called Thomas McCauley who nailed the sort of terminology of of a culturalist right in America, of a right who are sort of post Material and more concerned about status and remaining at the centre of status in America than anything else, and this sort of you know privileged position of being able to claim the identity of of being American is really what they're about. This vanity project and really the Trumpian project was a was one of vanity and assigning assigning to a narrow demographic of privileged people the ownership of what it of what it meant to be American or successful or anything like that. And there's an American conservative intellectual called Tom Nichols who writes for The Atlantic who I think is really great. He's one of those never-Trump conservatives who's seen just like the collapse of the conservative project in America and has the sort of, and has the honesty to to analyse where it all went so terribly wrong. And he used a term which has been out of the parlance for some time, as you can imagine, to describe these people, which is the lumpen bourgeoisie that you're not looking at a group of people who are trying to overthrow the government because they're, you know, they're unrepresented by it. They're trying to overthrow the government to ensure they'll always be represented by it and that that their anxiety around a a status under pressure from other communities in the United States is that that anxiety can be relieved. And these are the people who are seeing join these movements, the small business owners, they're middle-class professionals they're people who have the time in Australia to sit on the steps of Parliament House in Victoria for a couple of weeks. They're people who have the you know have the anxiety around. I don't. You know, how dare you tell me what to do? Like, they're not. They're not oppressed or marginalised. People who are oppressed and marginalised communities are very aware of the fact that they're told what to do all the time. And that's quite a common experience and something that you rationalise when you're in a situation of powerlessness. So it it has been really, it was really interesting writing the book to sort of, to to get on that channel of looking at a lumpen bourgeoisie, a post-material community who are so obsessed with their own privilege that they're literally willing to overthrow governments and destroy institutions to maintain it.
1: Van, I know at some point in the book you make reference to situation where post the Second World War there was a kind of formal or informal blockade on the promotion of fascist political activity and cultural institutions. But now internet culture has um, overcome that obstacle. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about the uh, liberation of hate, let's say, uh, online and also whether or not you think or what kinds of remedies are available uh, to others who want to uh, denounce fascism and so on, um, in terms of their online activities. Like, is this just uh, a situation which always obtains where you have the you know, free anonymous exchange of ideas? Or is this uh, instead symptomatic of a, a broader cultural phenomenon which allows for and promotes these kinds of ideas?
2: Oh, look, it's, I mean, it's so thorny. You know, I've always described myself as like, as part of a a libertarian Marxist tendency in my various incarnations as an anarcho-syndicalist or a democratic socialist, like depending on what my mood is on any particular day, I've always sort of seen that like the libertarianism of of free speech politics is really central to a progressive ideological identity. And I've got to say my adventures on the internet over the past few years have had a massive They've really dented my idealism, I think is the politest way of putting that, because there are really important questions about the free speech absolutism of the internet and what that tangibly means for marginalized people. Like the the project of the left is justice and kindness. And they are the two values that we bed down on whatever left-wing tendency we identify within. And whether we're making justice and kindness impossible by defending a free speech internet, that's a really important question. And I think we have to recognize that the that the internet is horrendous like it ha- it has allowed this to come back and like I said you know the idea that if you allow a play, if you allow an environment in which ironic racism for example or ironic homophobia or any other kind of ironic hatred is accepted currency like what is what is to stop people who hold those values non ironically from joining it Like, there is nothing to stop them. And does that mean that there is a normalisation of that language and that rhetoric? Yes. Does that have consequences in terms of reifying movements that will mobilise in the service of those objectives? Well, yes, we're seeing that in Melbourne. Like, we're absolutely seeing that. You know, they broke out the swastika on the weekend. Like, they were still denying it and, you know, playing cute about participation of the organised far right in those demonstrations, but there, there it was. And that's not going to go away. Like, what does it mean in terms of how we, how, what does it mean within a democracy to look at such an absolutely strident anti-democratic movement? And that's what it is. You don't threaten to kill the premier if, if you're pro-democracy. Like, it's an, it's an absolute, it's been a stoked and nurtured authoritarianism within that community and they're immune. Because they live in a sealed information environment, and this is what the book talks about as well. That the further you go down the rabbit hole, the harder it is to come out, because you lose the people around you who try and argue facts and logic with you, and you don't respond to them. They tend to disappear out of frustration, and then suddenly you're you start with a psych, like a psychological distress, and then you end up in a, a sociological problem where. You know your paranoias and your conspiratorial thinking are actively fueled by a combination of people who are like you and other people who are set to manipulate you in the service of an authoritarian project. Like Bannon is quite explicit about where he wants this to lead. He's one of the most ideological, ideologically explicit political actors in the world you know like and he has a very and in the book i go into detail about how organized his political project is to create an authoritarian movement that will destroy american democracy like that's that's what he's doing like he's not pretending to do anything else and you know the all of the the political actors who who are acting within that movement like that's that's the end goal as well and like what does it mean in terms of how do we preserve democracy against people who are absolutely intent on its destruction and using what we would we would suggest was a, a forum for the you know expression of the the purest flower of the democratic sentiment, which is, you know, like free speech absolutism. What does it mean to defend that? Well, currently we're defending a number of pipelines that are radicalizing people back into fascism and Nazism. And like there are arguments around Um, What is, like, are the platforms responsible? Well, the platforms are are partially responsible, certainly. I mean, I have 4,000 friends on Facebook who are QAnon supporters, even though uh, Zuckerberg announced that all the QAnon uh, QAnon accounts would be purged. They're still there. They're still communicating in memes. Like, I've joined those groups very easily in my project to research them. Like, what does it what does it mean that the organisation of these protests in Melbourne and and everywhere else are being done through Telegram? Like, anyone can join those groups. They're not. It's not difficult to do that. Like, Telegram is not accountable to anyone. It's you know how do how do we possibly reel that in? Nina Yankovic, who's the disinformation scholar from the Wilson Center, who I also interviewed from the book, who I know I think you guys have spoken to her as well. She's like the the bigger issue here is a cultural project that really is strident in institutional anti-fascism that the idea that anti-fascism anti-fascism isn't something that we associate with the left it's something that we associate with a majority position because that was you know that that was the legacy of the second world war was that this was to never happen again and all sides agreed on that and but that that consensus is broken down the idea that a center right party and this is i mean this is one of the the really surprising discoveries for me as well was that to keep to keep the fascists out you need a you need a moral and strong center right you do actually need an explicit bulwark against authoritarianism to exist in in the mainstream right and the reason why this is becoming so frightening as a as a political trend, this sort of footsie with the far right from from who are supposed to be mainstream centre right actors, like we've been here before as the West, and when we were here last time, it ended incredibly badly. And there has to be a kind of there ha- there has to be an an, an an institutional energy to fight to fight fascism everywhere, like everywhere, fight fascism always everywhere. Like from the universities to the health system, to the media to like policing, it's got to be an absolute inherent value in every social institution we have, even if it is and it's got to be a value encouraged in our ideological opposites as a bulwark against the the alternative who are currently marching down the streets of Melbourne with nooses waving swastikas threatening to kill people like i don't I don't think we can afford to be pure, I think we have to be active and alert. Well, I think that's a good spot to leave it. I, I, I had a question, question but,
0: but my question got answered. Which oh, was good.
2: what? Oh,
0: I was going to be what do we do?
2: <laughs> we fucking, we smash them. <laughs> we just got to smash them at all times. Like, I get up in the morning and I think, what can I do to fight fascism today? Like, what can I do? What can you do? What can any of us do to fight fascism today? And for everybody, there's going to be a different answer to that question, which is good because we've got to fight them on all fronts.
1: My answer is usually the same, actually.
2: Because something is going very, very, very wrong if there are fascists at all. To be fascist should be the most absolutely like shame, like the most hideously crippling private shame to have any fascist beliefs. The idea that you would exp- exp- express them in public, like there has to be complete, there has to be complete social sanction for holding any of those values at all. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just find it—I find it terrifying it, writing the book. I, I just can I just say I had weeks of nightmares because I went from this sort of, you know, like I—I I have a very reliable Marxist analysis that applies to this situation, but it, it is actually wrong. The framework of approaching this is wrong. Um, the source of the problem, like capital, capitalism, is the problem, but it's this—it's this class of it's a class of capitalists who are dancing with the far right. And and centrist right politicians are facilitating them, and despite every historical lesson that should inform them that that they will come, the fascists will come for them too. They will eat out their parties, which is what's happening in the United States. Like neo fascism has overtaken the Republican Party, and people who thought that they could where have I heard this before control this tendency, like it's now out of control, and they are paying the political price for it. Well, then
0: on that note, we'll wrap it up. If people want to find the book, it is available in all good bookstores, QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. Thanks for joining us. Well, Andy, that is all we've got time for. Global Infanta is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you then.
2: Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by Black and Indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2021. Coming up at the Nightcap... Better Late Running till 3am Every Friday and Saturday Featuring the best local And international bands and DJs Including Zeitgeist Freedom Energy Exchange Gypsy Brown with Tando Spasta with Adriana and Odd Mob Domingo Latino Sundays With La Influencia and Calle Luna Upcoming shows including Art vs Science ModCon I Know Leopard And more For info and tickets Head to the nightcat.com.au. A 3CR supporter.